This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Till death do us part can sound like an ominous proposition. The ups and downs of spending a lifetime with someone in perfect harmony is something that the mind cannot fully comprehend. They say that trust is the foundation of all good relationships. To be able to let your guard down with someone is a gift. To be vulnerable with them. To simply be who you are. To close your eyes and sleep beside them knowing that you are safe. But not all relationships are happy ones. And no one ever knows what goes on behind closed doors. This is the murder of Tech Wong. And this is True North True Crime. Welcome to episode 9 of True North True Crime. Thank you for joining us. We know you have a lot of great options for true crime listening, so we appreciate you putting us in your rotation. As always, we want to let you know that you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TNTCPod and like us over on Facebook at True North True Crime. Or if you have an idea for a case, please reach out to us at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. And just a quick disclaimer up front that True North True Crime episodes are created using news articles and court documents that are publicly accessible online. Uh, When we have the opportunity, we do interview people, and everything we report on is based on searchable facts that we compile all into one episode for you. In tonight's episode, we're going to be talking about a brutal murder that occurred in 2013. In order to do that, we will be taking you on a journey once again to Edmonton, Alberta, home of White Ave and Cheap Gas. As we mentioned in the Johnny Altinger episode, the land where Edmonton is located is on what is known as Treaty 6 territory, and since time immemorial has been the home and meeting place for a diverse range of Indigenous, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. Edmonton is the capital city of the Western Prairie Province of Alberta, Canada. The city has a population of about 930,000 people, making it Canada's fifth largest municipality. Geographically, Edmonton anchors the north end of what is referred to as the Calgary-Edmonton Corridor. Edmonton is the economic center for Alberta and is driven by the oil and gas industry. So most other industries are oil and gas adjacent. But even industries like restaurants and entertainment can be affected by the ups and downs of the oil market. Most people I know in Edmonton live a pretty nice lifestyle. Compared to other Canadian cities or large Canadian cities like Vancouver and Toronto, Edmonton offers a slightly more affordable existence. However, Edmonton does have a bit of a murder problem. Its annual numbers skew higher than the national average. Yeah, and 2013 was a bit of a murder year for Edmonton as it recorded 29 murders. And while this number of 29 was nowhere near the record-breaking 48 murders it registered in 2011, it was still significant enough to spawn the following article from the Edmonton Journal. The youngest victim was seven years old, killed by his mother. The oldest was 71, allegedly slain by his son. 
There were 28 men and one woman, including one child, two teens, and three seniors. Edmonton's 29 confirmed homicide victims of 2013 died in their homes, outside bars, and on the street and in correctional institutions. 11 of the 29 victims were stabbed. Nine were beaten or suffered blunt force trauma. Five were shot. One died from being beaten and slashed. One was drowned. And in one case, the cause of death is being withheld by the police for investigative reasons. There was a homicide in every month, the deadliest being November, which had five homicides altogether and three in just four days. In addition to the 29 confirmed homicides, detectives also went to another 20 suspicious deaths. The first confirmed homicide happened barely a week into 2013 when a 50-year-old man was found dead inside a suite on the 8th floor of the notorious Capitol Tower Apartments on January 9th. The final was a death of a 34-year-old man at the Edmonton Remand Center on December 24th. The youngest victim was a 7-year-old whose mentally ill mother drowned him in a bathtub. The oldest victim was a 71-year-old who died from blunt force cranial trauma. His son was charged with second-degree murder. In 2013, Sergeant Bill Clark stated, It's really tough to say how our victims become victims. There's so many factors involved in how a person gets to the point of killing another person. And with that, we will introduce you to Tech Huang. So this case is a challenging one to find details on. Maybe it's because it happened way back in 2013, or maybe it's because of how it played out in court. Uh, There's not a lot of media coverage on this case or publicly available court documents, but here is what we know. At the time of his death, Tech Huang was a 56-year-old man. He lived in a house on 160th Avenue in northeast Edmonton with his 52-year-old wife, Nayak Huang, and their 16-year-old son. We have made a decision not to name the son. While he is an adult now and his name is publicly available, we just felt it wasn't important to name him in this episode. So best guesses would indicate that Nayak and Tech were married in 1986, which would make them together for about 27 years. It is unclear what Nayak did for a living, but she did volunteer with providing meals at a local Buddhist temple. Also, it's unclear what Tech did for a living, but it has been reported that he had some issues with gambling. The pair moved to Canada from Malaysia around 1993. The family had been living in their Belle Reve neighborhood home since 2003. Neighbors would describe them as friendly. They would say hi to one another or sometimes stop to chat. Here's a quote from one of the neighbors about them. He's a very quiet guy, but every time he would meet me, and then I would say hi, and then he'd say hi, how are you? That's all. But the wife, the wife and I used to talk all the time. The same neighbor went on to describe them as just normal people. So yeah, that's all we could find about the couple. But here's what we know about the night the tech died. At around 10 p.m. on Sunday, August 25th, 2013, paramedics would be called to the Huang residence in Edmonton Northeast. They would find Tech Huang in the hallway in medical distress. His wife, Nayuk, and their 16-year-old son were by his side. Tech was naked and wet. EMTs would begin to treat him as a patient of cardiac failure. As first responders struggled to stabilize Tech, his wife and son looked on. Tech would be transported to hospital where he fought for his life for four and a half hours. At around 2.50 in the morning on Monday, August 26th, 
Tech Wong would be pronounced dead at just 56 years old. But as EMTs were trying to stabilize Tech's heart, they noticed that wasn't his only malady. His wife and son would be brought in for questioning as no one else was in the home that evening. Responding officers from the Edmonton Police Service and EMTs could not help but notice the large volume of cuts and bruises on Tech's body. His death would instantly be considered suspicious. A medical examiner performed an immediate autopsy. The conclusion of that autopsy found that Tech Huang had died from blunt, drastic trauma. According to the medical examiner, Tech had suffered a severe and prolonged beating. On Tuesday, August 27, 2013, 52-year-old Nayak Huang would be charged with second-degree murder in the death of her husband, Tech. She would appear in court the next day on Wednesday, August 28th. The following is from a Global News article. A woman facing a second-degree murder charge for killing her husband appeared in court Wednesday morning. Nayak Huang made her first court appearance via closed-circuit television. Huang appeared agitated when she walked into the room. She looked at the television screen and said, I'm scared. I'm very panicked. She then asked for ten more seconds. In court, the counsel for Huang's defense asked for six weeks to bring forward disclosure. Bail was not spoken to. Huang wore glasses and appeared to have a bruise on her forehead. At one point, she could be seen hitting her clasped hands over her chest. The 52-year-old Edmonton resident is accused of beating her husband, 56-year-old Tech Huang, at their North End home Sunday evening, resulting in his death. Several members of the Huang family were inside the courtroom Wednesday. Global News spoke to one man who says he is a distant cousin of the accused. He would only say he was very surprised when he received the news about the death and the subsequent charges. Her case has been put over until September 18th. She's not required to make an appearance. This is Edmonton's 17th homicide this year. So we have a husband who has been severely beaten and found to be in cardiac arrest on a Sunday. He sadly passes away in the early morning of Monday, and his wife arraigned in court with second-degree murder charges on Wednesday. But it turns out that Nayak was no stranger to the justice system, nor did she have an aversion to violence. Yeah, it turns out that Tech had been a victim of domestic violence at the hands of his wife, Nayak, for many years. In fact, in January of 2008, Nayak Wong was charged with assault causing bodily harm against her husband, and she was later sentenced to three weeks in jail and two years of probation for the attack. The terms of her probation included taking programming as directed by the courts and her probation officer, including for psychiatric and psychological um, issues, domestic violence, anger management, and marital-slash-parental issues. So let's get into what we know about the events of that fateful night after a quick break. And we are back. This case is an incredibly tragic one, and we would be remiss if we didn't use this as an opportunity to talk about domestic violence in Canada. Yeah, this type of violence lived in the shadows of our society for a long time, um, and I know it still does. But it seems to have come out of the darkness at the end of the 80s, which pushed it into society as something we need to address and seek solutions for. Since then, while awareness and prevention campaigns have helped, 
Um, but it's clear that the problem still exists and millions of people around the globe fall victim to it. Domestic violence or intimate partner violence affects married, common law, ended relationships, and people who are simply dating. It affects all genders and all types of intimate relationships. Victims of family violence can be children or adults. It can happen to women, men, people who are trans and non-binary. It can happen in heteronormative relationships, same-sex relationships, and polyamorous relationships. It can be between siblings or elder abuse. We have even seen cases in Canada where the domestic care aides become victims of domestic violence or vice versa. Yeah, in fact, I used to do some simulation work with the Justice Institute for training police recruits. Um, and I would often be put in same-sex domestic violence situations or in simulations where I played the abused husband in a heteronormative relationship so that the police could differentiate who the aggressor was and not make those decisions based on gender alone. It's interesting, too, because this work I was doing in, like, the early 2000s. Family violence can present itself in a myriad of ways. It can be neglect, controlling behavior, physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse. It can be psychological as well as financial. Often, it's a combination of these tactics. Yeah, and it can be one-off incidents or it can be patterned behavior. According to a Statistics Canada report from 2011, intimate partner violence, including both spousal and dating violence, accounts for one in every four violent crimes reported to police. In 2011, there were approximately 97,500 victims of intimate partner violence just in Canada. Yeah, the vast majority of those victims, 80%, were women or women identifying. This finding has been consistent over time. Sometimes this violence continues after the relationship has ended. There has been a high number of violent incidents that are perpetrated by exes. Again, according to Stats Canada, Saskatchewan and Manitoba have the highest rates of intimate partner violence, and Quebec and Ontario have the lowest rates. On the positive, there has been an upward trend in charges laid by law enforcement for domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Since the 90s, police have trended towards charging in these matters at higher rates, along with high conviction rates. In 2011, 71% of intimate partner violence incidents reported to police resulted in a criminal charge being laid or recommended against the accused. This was almost double the proportion recorded for non-intimate partner violence, which was just at 39%. So basically that means uh, that you were attacked by somebody who was not intimate with you, so a stranger, a friend. A co-worker or, uh, yeah, it could be anybody. And that meaning that it, it's easier for them to charge on a domestic violence situation because they know exactly who the perpetrator is Yeah, and the evidence is there. Interestingly, though, among intimate partner violence incidents, 16% were cleared by means other than a charge. The most common reason for incident going without charges included a request by the complainant not to lay charges or other reasons that were beyond the control of police departments and Crown Prosecution. So we found it a little odd that the Stats Canada website study was from all the way back in 2011. So the following comes from a series of CBC articles on the topic in March of 2020. Every story of intimate partner violence and murder is different, but there are many commonalities. Consider that 6 in 10 spousal homicides in Canada are preceded by a history of family violence, according to Stats Canada. 
That means there were possible moments of intervention where victims, overwhelmingly women, could have been helped, perhaps saved. That's why Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the U.S. deems intimate partner violence to be preventable. That idea has increasing traction here in Canada. It's obvious urgent action is needed. There are 100,000 victims of domestic violence each year, and about 90 people die annually at the hands of their abuser. So the unique feature of the Taekwong case is that it was violence perpetrated from a woman to a man. We wanted to understand this a little more, so we did a little research. So let's chat about that for a moment. We're going to quote from a Government of Canada website section entitled, Intimate Partner Abuse Towards Men. An in-depth narrative study examined the experiences and effects of physical abuse for 12 married men, ages 25 to 47. The men sustained injuries such as multiple bruises and abrasions, dislocated ribs, injured genitalia, minor head trauma, numerous lacerations, and internal injuries. Weapons used by the wives included clothes hangers, steak knives, scissors, screwdrivers, cellular phones, fingernails, metal pots and pans, rolling pins, keys, and other thrown objects. The study provided some insights into the respondents' feelings about their situations and the effects those situations had on their self-identity. Having been abused by a woman, the man felt that they had failed to achieve culturally defined masculine characteristics, such as independence, strength, toughness, and self-reliance. As a result, the men felt masculated, marginalized, and tended not to express their fears, ask for help, or even discuss details of their violent experiences. During the interviews, the abused men repeatedly expressed shame and embarrassment. The men indicated that their disclosures of abuse were often met with reactions of disbelief, surprise, and skepticism from the staff of domestic abuse shelters. These reactions may cause male victims to feel even more abused. Yeah, we just wanted to provide a little bit of information around intimate partner violence as well as the aspect of of a man being abused by a woman because it just doesn't seem like it's something that's talked about. Um, And it's something I certainly didn't know a lot about. Yeah, I mean, it's only 20% of cases, but that doesn't mean it's not happening and important to know. Yeah, so now we are going to talk about what we know about what happened in the Wong home on Sunday, August 25th, 2013. Tech Wong had come home and a lengthy argument was heard between him and his wife throughout the house. A neighbor would say she heard raised voices coming from the home on Sunday night, but didn't pay much attention until police showed up at her door. At the onset of the argument, their 16-year-old son was in his bedroom with his headphones on. Eventually, the son heard the fight, which apparently he had become accustomed to. He came out of his room five times within an hour to check on them. At one point, the son came out of his room and found Nyok, his mom, pulling Tech, his dad, up a flight of stairs using an extension cord which she had wrapped around Tech's neck. Nyok instructed her son to place Tech in the bathtub. As the son undressed Tech, he observed multiple bruises and cuts on Tech's abdomen and other parts of his body. As the son attempted to clean up his father's wounds in the bathtub, Nayak continued yelling at Tech and then began to strike Tech with a metal shower rod on his head and other parts of his body. The son helped move his dad into a bedroom. Tech was bleeding from many places on his body, including a massive gash on his head. 
It's worth noting that in the son's testimony, he stated that he did not notice any injuries on his mom, meaning this wasn't a two-way fight. We should also note that the assault was never directed at the son, and as far as we know, he didn't participate in it in any violent way. He was simply there trying to help his dad. It is assumed that the assault had ended here for a time, as Tech lay in the bedroom and the son returned to his own room. But, a short time later, the assault continued. Yeah, the son came out of his room again and found Tech in the hallway, naked and unconscious, with Nyack standing over him. When Tech became unresponsive, the son called 911 at 10 p.m., but Nyack took the phone from him. Nyack told the 911 operator that she and her husband had a big fight, and she was really nervous. She also said, I hit him so bad and he cannot talk and he breathe. I need help. Meanwhile, Tech lay at her feet in the hallway, bleeding from the back of his head and vomiting blood. Before first responders arrived, Nyack asked her son to clean up some of the blood in the hallway. When EMTs arrived, Tech was already going into cardiac arrest. When police arrived, Nyack was observed to be emotional, and she stated to the police, I tell you, I hit my husband very bad today. Police would find a broken shower curtain rod, a 2 by 4 a yellow wooden stick, a metal broom handle, and a broken stone pestle herb crusher. So a mortar and pestle. Mm-hmm. Nyack admitted hitting Tech only with the shower curtain rod. However... Tech's blood was found on several, if not all, of the other objects found. Tech was taken away by ambulance, but was pronounced dead at the hospital. The time and date of his death was recorded at 0249 hours on August 26, 2013. An autopsy determined Tech Huang suffered blunt trauma to his head, thorax, abdomen, arms, legs, and back. The assault also caused his heart to be bruised, which led to the cardiac arrest. That, along with the blood loss, caused his death. Edmonton Police Staff Sergeant Bill Clark, who some of you may remember from the Johnny Altinger case, said homicide investigators were at the house within about an hour of the original call. He said, This is a classic case of domestic violence, one which we don't normally hear of in the news, where it's a wife in this case, beating on the husband. Usually, it's the other way around. Clark said he was shocked when the autopsy concluded the death was the result of blunt, drastic trauma, as it is a term Clark said he had never heard in all of his years as a homicide investigator. Yeah, can you imagine? He's a homicide investigator, and he had literally never heard the term blunt, drastic trauma. That's how bad it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this beating was extreme and brutal. On November 24th, 2016, three years after Tech's death, Nyack's trial for second-degree murder would commence. And the first day was odd. Here's a quote from the Edmonton Journal. When Huang was arraigned on the charge before the jury, she jumped up from the table she was sitting at beside her lawyer and said that while she was not guilty of second-degree murder, she was guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. So for clarity... She literally jumped up from her chair and attempted to plead for a lesser charge in the middle of a trial. This is not normal. 
The Crown rejected the attempted guilty plea and the judge ruled that the trial would continue. So here is what we've learned about the trial. In an opening statement, Crown Prosecutor Maya Inazuka told the six men and six women on the jury that they would hear from witnesses including fire department personnel and the son of the accused, along with DNA evidence and the autopsy report which proves the cause of death. She also said the couple's son is expected to paint a picture during his testimony of a very difficult home life. Now, before the son could testify, Nayak would once again throw herself on the mercy of the court and the Crown prosecutors. She would again attempt to plead to manslaughter in the death of her husband. Nayak stated that she couldn't bear the thought of having to watch her son testify against her. This time, the judge and the Crown would accept the plea deal, and the case would move on to the sentencing phase. On January 6th, 2017, Nayak's sentencing hearing would occur. Nayak Huang would be found guilty of manslaughter in the death of Tech Huang. Here's a quote from the Edmonton Journal. A woman who pled guilty to beating her husband to death was sentenced to 15 years in prison Friday, concluding what City Homicide Staff Sergeant Bill Clark described as one of the worst cases of domestic violence he's seen in his career. Naya Kwong made a tearful statement of apology in court, thanking her supporters and pointing to the volunteer work she's done and stress caused by her outstanding mortgage payments. She said she decided to plead guilty because she didn't want to see her son testify against her. Quote, I don't want to have a bad memory of him in my heart, she said. Her lawyer, Charles Sito, said his client has suffered from mental health issues that began following her son's birth and that her son's estrangement has been difficult for her. The judge accepted the joint submission of the Crown and the defense for a 15-year sentence. So just to back that up a second. Um, she, <laughs> she somehow pleaded down from second-degree murder to manslaughter. Right. And then she kind of is like, I don't want to have a bad memory. I know there's some lost in translation or whatever, but she says, I don't want to have a bad memory of my son. And then her own lawyer puts it on that she has had 16 years of postpartum depression because because of the birth of her son and also that her son has been estranged from her and she found that difficult but it's like well weren't you beating his dad on the regular yeah like how do you think your son feels without you and his dad <laughs> yeah like and also like he had to be in that house while that was happening i'm sure that that would have a negative impact on how he interacted with his mom. Yeah, she's obviously a very selfish person. Or suffering from severe mental health issues, obviously, like that that became homicidal yeah. in this case. So Nayuk got a 15-year sentence, and she was given 60 days credit for time served, so she only has 14 years and 10 months left of prison time. She was also ordered to provide a DNA sample for the Federal Offenders Database and is under a lifetime weapons prohibition. The judge also granted two no-contact orders requested by Tech Huang's sister and niece, which prohibits Nayak Huang from attempting to communicate with them. The son, 19 at the time of the sentencing, attended the sentencing, supported by family members from his father's side the family did not enter any victim impact statements. A victim services staff member told reporters Tech Wong's family declined to comment, other than to say they were relieved the court case was finally ending. 
Nyack had a handful of supporters and friends in attendance. Seven letters of support were entered with the court that described her as helpful and generally kind. She was a frequent volunteer cook at a local Buddhist temple in the years that followed her release on bail. This is my favorite thing. It's like, look at my friend. She's done volunteer work. Also, she has a history of domestic violence. I know. It's like, that's not a defense. I know. And the thing is, the volunteer work was like in the period of time after she was arrested. But I mean, the challenging thing with this case is, and we, we kind of touched on it earlier, was that she does have mental health issues. And, but the thing is, a lot of people have mental health issues and they don't become violent. Yeah, and they don't beat their spouses. Yeah. yeah. It, just, it just gets me that they're like, well, you know, she was generally kind and like f- gave out food at a Buddhist temple. Yeah. yeah, but she killed her husband. I know. And repeatedly beat him. In, in front of her son. In front of her son, which is the other the other side of domestic violence, you know, that maybe we didn't touch on earlier is like... That poor kid has to live with this for the rest of his for life. For the rest of his life, yeah. In one letter, a friend wrote that Nayuk Huang is normally very happy and smiling, but sometimes you can also see that she is very sad. Sergeant Bill Clark stated, This is a classic case of domestic violence, and I think the sentence is just... He later added that he was skeptical about expressions of remorse in domestic abuse cases. I don't think people like that have remorse, he said. I don't think they have that in them. That's why they are domestic offenders. That's why they are violent offenders. I love uh, Sergeant Bill Clark. He's like a quote machine. If I can ever find a quote from him, I try and pull it. Yeah. He also said that the Crown Prosecutor's Office is still considering charges at that time for the son's involvement. Now, as far as we know, that has never come to fruition. As for the letters of support that paint a picture of Naya Kwong as a generous volunteer, Clark said it is possible for a person who commits intimate violence to act completely different in public. Exactly. He said, What was going on inside that house? She's got a different persona outside in the community than she had on the inside. Yeah, so this is something we see with a lot of different offenders, not just people who commit domestic violence, but like murderers, you know, rapists, anybody. Yeah. They're not, I mean, they're not who they are outside. Otherwise, they'd get caught. Yeah, and the thing, like getting back to intimate partner violence or family violence, the people who are victims of it are very good at hiding the symptoms of it. And so colleagues or friends are not always there to see the symptoms or see the outward signs. It it becomes a part of the whole disease of it, which is why the Center for Disease Control looks at it as a preventable Mm -hmm. disease. Yeah, and like you'll notice a bruise on somebody and they'll have a story for it right away. Yeah. Oh, I I fell or I hit my head on the cupboard or whatever it might be. Or the trauma of the child who couldn't sleep the night through because Mm -hmm. of, of hearing the loud voices or the violence that occurred inside the home. Yeah, and their son has to live with the memories of this and without a dad and with a mom in prison for the rest of his life. And, you know, I also want to point out that, yes, Nyack obviously has mental health challenges, but Mm -hmm. a lot of people do. And that doesn't mean mental health doesn't equate to violence. Yeah. There There were a lot of other factors that were going on that led her to commit homicidal violence towards her husband. So the son would go on to file a wrongful death lawsuit against his own mother. His lawyers would file for a summary judgment, which is a faster and less expensive alternative to a full trial. 
So this judgment was released on December 22nd, 2014, but it was not filed due to the ongoing criminal proceedings. On March 16th, 2018, counsel for the son requested that the judgment be filed. And here are some excerpts from that court document. Counsel for the son argued that there is uncontroverted evidence that Nyack wrongfully caused the death of Tech. Moreover, it was argued that the affidavit of the son, coupled with the report of the medical examiner, clearly establishes on a balance of probabilities that Nyuk wrongfully caused the death of Tech, particularly given that the son personally witnessed the defendant pulling the deceased by the neck with an extension cord and the subsequent striking of him multiple times with a shower rod. Counsel for Nyuk would argue that there was insufficient evidence before the court to establish the causation of death. But the evidentiary record in this application reveals the following. Number one, the son was an eyewitness to the strangulation and beating of Tech by Nyuk. Number two, Tech became unresponsive immediately following the strangulation and beating. Number three, Tech may have died at his residence or shortly thereafter at the hospital. Thus, there is little or no temporal gap between the beating of him and his death. Number four, the medical examiner determined that the sole cause of death was multiple blunt trauma. Number five, the son observed a prior history of violence towards Tech by Nyok. Number six, there is no evidence to the contrary on the issue of causation of death. So yeah, it's pretty clear that Nyok's defense attorney saying there was little evidence to prove causation of death was just a lawyer being a lawyer. But it's like, there's no evidence, but she's serving a, a sentence for manslaughter? Yeah, but this was before the trial had finished. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I was like, what? Yeah, but even still, even before the trial happened, it's like, well, there's plenty of evidence that says that <laughs> she caused his death. And the whole last trial is going to go on to prove that there's enough evidence here. Yeah, so the judge would basically state that the evidence is so obvious that that a trial in this matter was redundant, and the judge would go on to state the following. On this evidentiary record, I conclude, for the purposes of these civil proceedings only, that there is no issue of merit genuinely requiring of trial respecting the issue of whether Nyack wrongfully caused the death of Tech. So, and a bit of good news at the end of this here, the son was awarded $49,000 uh, for grief and loss of guidance and companionship of the deceased. In addition, there will be a declaration that Nyok is not entitled to receive any portion of the estate of Tech, including his interest as joint tenant in the matrimonial home, and that his interest in the matrimonial home is held in trust for the son. So we wanted to give our listeners uh, some ideas of where you can find help. Family violence and intimate partner violence can feel isolating, but you're not alone. If you need help, it is out there. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, call 911. If your area does not have 911, call your local police department and their emergency number. The police are trained to help you deal with dangerous situations. They are there to investigate, and they can also help you get a peace bond in Canada. They can also refer you to victim services, and victim services or a lawyer can help you get a non-criminal protection order to keep the person who abused you away from you. So both both peace bonds and protection orders are like no-contact orders yeah. that can keep that person away from you. 
If your situation is not an immediate threat to life, there are victim services, legal aid representatives, religious communities, shelters, helplines, and healthcare professionals that want to help. We will link some Canadian services on our Facebook page. If you are a person seeking help for intimate partner violence, we encourage you to call any of your community-based victim services in your area because we don't know where you're listening from, but we hope you can find the help that you need in that area. This brings us to the end of this episode. Tech Wong was murdered by his partner, Nayuk, in the matrix of a long-time abusive marriage. We were unable to find any evidence that Tech was an aggressor in any way. He was murdered by the person he loved. Relationships are challenging and there are so many reasons people stay in difficult relationships. It's so hard to judge people as we don't know what was going on for them or why they stay. Yeah, our hearts go out to Tech's family and his son, who not only lost his dad, but he also lost his mom. His home life was obviously not ideal, but who knows what kind of relationship he could have had with his father as he grew into adulthood. We'll never know as that was taken away from him. And as we stated, we made a choice not to use his name because we felt that he had gone through enough and bringing him back into this could be re-traumatizing. So let us know your thoughts on this case. Of course, you can always reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter at TNTCPod or at our Facebook page at True North True Crime. Or if you feel like shooting us an old-fashioned email, you can do that at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. And in two weeks' time, we're going to have a special uh, Halloween-themed episode coming to you guys where we are going to be taking you back to the year 1899. We are aiming to release that episode uh, before Halloween so we can help get you into a spooky mood. So until then, thank you and stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, you guys.